I would uh, really be remiss if I didn't stop for a moment and thank our high school student band for leading us in worship this morning. <laughs> didn't they do a great job? Thank you guys. And Cynthia, thank you so much for putting that together. Uh, she has been putting that together, our, our band together for quite a while. And uh, every uh, Sunday night, well, not every Sunday night, but uh, occasionally on certain Sunday nights, uh, they lead our middle school in worship. And so, uh, and under Todd's leadership and Cynthia's, Todd Cooper's leadership, our student pastor, and Cynthia's leadership. And I just want to thank you guys so much for leading us in worship. Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? God, thank you so much for today. God, this is the day that you have made. And Father God, I pray that we would rejoice and be glad in it. And you are the one that deserves our highest praise. You are the name above all names, the Holy One, as we've just sung. God, you are our everything. And God, we thank you so much for the gift of salvation that you gave when you died on the cross. And Father, I pray today that you would guide us and direct us in these next few moments together. God, I specifically want to begin today by praying for those who walked in here today and they've been harmed because of someone who said something or did something, God, that was damaging to them. And God, I pray that you would just be with them. I pray that you would provide healing for that pain. God, I pray that you would help each one of us to seek joy from you. God, that we would be people that find our gladness and our delight in who you are and what you are doing in our lives. Holy Spirit, now I pray that you would just guide us into wisdom and truth and into knowledge. May my words not be mine, but Father God, may they be yours. May you challenge each one of us, no matter where we are in our lives. God, may you challenge us, and may you encourage us. We thank you for your word as we open it up now. And we pray all this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you so much for being here. For those of you I don't know, my name's Todd, and I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, and I I'm so glad that you're here today. Last week in, in our message, I, I kind of alluded to uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, and we're not going to be there today, so don't turn your Bibles to Acts 16. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 here in a few minutes, but Acts chapter 16 is a, a, a remarkable uh, a moment in, in time, a remarkable uh, chapter uh, as the Dr. Luke records the happenings of the first church. And in the book of Acts, uh, he records what went on, what took place in those early days in the very first century as uh, God was moving and, and, and people went out from Jerusalem and began to share the, the message of Jesus Christ uh, to the whole world. 
And in Acts chapter 16, we see a man named Paul. Uh, many of you know of Paul. Some of you probably may not. Um, he wrote most of the New Testament, most of the second half of the Bible. And uh, he was a man who God had called to go out and tell people about Jesus, to tell them about him. And, and so he went from Jerusalem and, and, and kind of took off northward and then westward. And uh, we find him uh, a little bit north of where Jerusalem is uh, in a place called Antioch. And, and when he was in Antioch, uh, one night he, he had a vision. And this wasn't like, you know, a, a nightmare kind of vision. This was a, you know, God-given vision that he had in the middle of the night. And the vision was is that he was supposed to go to Macedonia and to go meet a man of Macedonia. And we read this in, in Acts chapter 16. And so Paul, uh, with his fellow travelers, Timothy, and a few other people, uh, they decide that they would follow God in obedience, and they traveled to Macedonia. Now, when you hear Macedonia in Scripture, in the Bible, um, that almost always is relating to uh, what is now modern-day Greece. And so he goes and he travels to Macedonia, and he and his fellow travelers find themselves in this cosmopolitan city out in the middle of nowhere in modern-day Greece, this city called Philippi. Very modern for its time in that first century. And so they go there and they uh, are looking for a man of Macedonia. And God kind of changes what happened once he gets there. Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> like God takes you to a certain place and then he changes what he's doing, but he's in charge, so you do what he says to do. That's what happened with Paul. And so they find themselves in this cosmopolitan city called Philippi, and they wake up on the Sabbath day, the day that uh, they are uh, supposed to worship God, and they go to the place there in Philippi where they are supposed to worship God, and they begin singing hymns about God, and they begin to talk about Jesus, and they begin to pray. And in that little area right there where they were there in Philippi, kind of on the outskirts of Philippi, most theologians believe, uh, there was a lady in the crowd that day by the name of Lydia. And Acts chapter 16 records the fact that Lydia, this woman who just was in earshot of Paul, that day gave her life to Christ. And I'm a history geek, so I love this. So pardon me if I'm the only person in the room who's excited about this. I'm cool with that. But this was the first person on the continent of Europe that accepted Christ as their Savior. Isn't that cool? All right, I think it's cool. So anyway, all right. So Lydia becomes a Christ follower. She chooses to follow Jesus Christ as her Savior, which was a big deal. Ladies, it was a lady. The first European convert was a woman. Isn't that awesome? It's great. So Acts chapter 16 goes on to describe how um, while they were there in Philippi, there was this little slave girl that was demon-possessed, and she kept bothering Paul and, and his fellow travelers. I mean, probably bother us, this little demon-possessed girl. She was a slave girl, and finally one day, almost kind of, you get the feeling out of exhaustion, Paul goes, okay, what, what's going on? What's going on here? It's like evangelism by exasperation, you know, like, uh, I'm so tired of this, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. That's, you know, may not be the best way, but hey, it works. And so he began to talk to this little girl, and he cast out this demon, and she became a Christ follower. And then you fast forward later in chapter 16 of uh, the book of Acts, and you find out that uh, because this slave girl was owned by people of prominence, um, they didn't like what Paul did by casting out this demon and leading this little girl to Christ. They uh, really pressed charges, essentially, against Paul and all these guys that are with him, the travelers, and they, they had him thrown in jail there in Philippi. They were beaten thrown in jail. And so Paul and his friends find themselves in a jail cell in this cosmopolitan city where they were supposed to go meet a man of Macedonia. 
kind of interesting. And all of a sudden, as they are in jail, they decide that rather than to complain and whine about their circumstances, they begin to sing praises to God from jail. If I were in jail, I would not be singing praises to God. I'm telling you that honestly as your pastor. That would not be at least my first reaction. I might get there one day, but like it would take a while for me to get there if I'm being really honest. And we see the first evidence of Paul being able to write this letter that we're looking at in the month of November called Philippians, this letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi. He, he has the confidence to write about joy in any circumstance because he had joy in any circumstance. And then Acts chapter 16 goes on to describe that there's an earthquake that takes place and the jail cells all fall apart and the guard that's there, this jailer, uh, uh, Roman jailer, uh, or probably Greek jailer, uh, is worried because he goes out when the earthquake is happening and he goes in and he knows what's going to happen. He's going to go in and all the prisoners are going to be gone and he is going to be the one in trouble. So he goes in and much to his surprise, he finds Paul and his fellow travelers there in the back kind of in the dark. And this jailer who has heard them rejoicing and singing despite their circumstances asks them, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that's like teeing it up for a guy like Paul. Like, all right, man, I'm going to hit this one out of the park. And so this jailer becomes a Christ follower. And he goes, chapter 16 of Acts tells us, to his home. And all the people in his home become Christ followers. You see, Paul and his fellow travelers went through this terrible, awful experience to be put in jail so that God would be glorified and his message would be spread to this place called Philippi. God used those circumstances in their lives to bring him glory. And so we don't ever know who the man of Macedonia was. A lot of people think it might be Lydia, that it could have been Lydia, could have been the jailer, could have been the little slave girl. But God did an amazing thing right in this little chapter of Acts chapter 16. And the reason that I lead with that this morning is because this situation dovetails so well and it gives us the, the reliability to understand that Paul could talk about these types of things that we're going to look at today with a great amount of confidence because he absolutely put his faith and his trust and his source of joy in the person of Jesus Christ. And we so often fail to do that, even those of you who are Christ followers or maybe even have been for a long time. We try to find our, our happiness in something else. And we began last week by uh, talking about the fact that there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. And just as, as a way of reminding you, I'd love for you to go listen to that podcast on, on our website or iTunes. But uh, just as a way of uh, review, we talked about the fact that happiness, that word, um, literally comes from an original, the original language. It, it was hap, which we get the word haphazard from. It literally means random. Random. So like when you go, hey, I just want to be happy. What you're saying is, is I want a temporary solution. And happiness comes quickly and it leaves just as quickly, doesn't it? Joy is something different. Joy is found in Christ. It's a word that's derived specifically from Scripture. And its only relation is ever to Jesus Christ and our walk with God, our journey with God. 
You see, we can find happiness in the things of this world, and it'll come quickly, and it might be very exciting, but it'll be gone in a moment. If we find joy in our relationship with Jesus, wherever you are on that spectrum, it'll be lasting. It'll be lasting. And you can have confidence in it. That's the kind of joy that led Paul and his friends to be able to sing to God despite their circumstances. And today we're going to be focusing on how we can find delight or joy when we're faced in life with people and situations involving people who are trying to pull us down into despair. We're going to try to find joy in relationships or discouragement maybe has in the past been the hallmark. And so today, as we kind of continue in this series, It's All Good, that's the name of our series, we're going to be finding out what it means to find delight in selflessness. What does it mean for us to delight, that's another word for joy, or to rejoice when we have to be selfless? Because let's face it, when, when we interact with each other, there are times that we, we have to be selfless, right? I mean, if you're married, you understand this, right? You can't go through a marriage and be completely selfish. You have to go through a marriage and be completely selfless. If the marriage is going to work, if the relationship is going to work, there has to be an element of selflessness. But here's the problem. Here's the challenge. We as people so often find ourselves discouraged because of what someone said or what someone may have done to us or harmed us. And, and, and it brings us down to despair and, and to even maybe depression um, because we're seeking after happiness and not finding delight in our current circumstances. And today we're going to take a look at what it means to find joy and delight when we are forced to be selfless. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians. We're in chapter 2 today. Philippians chapter 2, if you have your notes, uh, some of you uh, didn't receive them. We've been running out, and uh, that's a good thing, right? Uh, but uh, uh, you can go to our app or you can go to our website, and you can take a look at the notes that are contained there. Let's take a look, and let's find out how you and I in 2014 can find delight, can find true joy when we're faced with situations where we ourselves have to be selfless, usually it's involving someone else. Take a look at Philippians. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Your version may be a little bit different. That's okay. The words from the ESV will be on the screen. Let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul starts off this way. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now he begins, in, in the ESV we have so. Some of you probably have therefore, and I was taught at a young age, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you got to look and see what it's there for, okay, a little stupid little thing, but you know, it does help us, right? I mean, it does help us to find out why it's there for, okay? So when you see the word so, or when you see the word therefore, um, stop and take a look and find out what has just happened. So if we go back to the end of chapter one, Paul essentially is saying in chapter one, and this is what we learned last week, that we ought to find our delight in our relationship with Jesus and in the purpose that he has given us. That's what Paul says. He says that we should find our delight and our joy in who we are in Christ 
and why God put us on this earth. And then at the end of the chapter, he has this little moment in time where he, he kind of says, um, don't cave in to the disunity that is happening among other Christians. That's essentially what he says. And it's a message of encouragement. This whole letter is it's a message of encouragement. He's not chiding the, the, the Philippian church. He's not disciplining them in any way uh, because they were unified. But he's giving them a, a bit of a caution here. Like, don't fall into the trap of all the other Christians in this first century who are causing disunity. And I realize, I want to pause for a moment and just say this. I realize that some of you have had a terrible church experience in your past because there were a bunch of Christians that could not agree on anything. They couldn't agree on anything. And the church may have ripped from top to bottom and you may have been shrapnel in this. And I want to tell you today, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I really am. Because the cause of Christ and, and what he has done is worth so much more than our division. And unfortunately, sometimes we're known more for what makes us different as Christians than what unites us. We focus more on those division things than we do on those things that brings us together. Paul is saying here, we've got to choose to be united as Christ followers. And he says, therefore, or so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, the word encouragement literally means, in the original language, giving relief. Giving relief. If there is any opportunity to find relief in Christ, how many of you need relief from a relationship that you have been damaged by or people that you've been damaged by? You can find that relief in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. That word comfort means consolation. Any participation, that means communion with, from the Holy Spirit. Any affection, you know what that word affection means? We kind of think of like all the, you know, the fun stuff of affection, right? We, you know, I mean, I'm a child of the 1980s. Every 1980s song was about, you know, the codependent affectionate relationship. I, I grew up around that. Most of you did. That's what we think of affection. But what God is saying here in the original Greek, what Paul is saying to us, is if you are concerned about someone to the point of sickness, that's what it means, literally. Like if you are sick to your stomach, how many of you have ever been sick to your stomach by a relationship? You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, but, you know, you've just been like sick to your stomach about a, a, a relationship or the way that somebody has treated you or the way that you observe someone treating someone else. He says if you have that, and then sympathy, which is a, an awareness of suffering. He says if you're concerned about that, if you need relief from this type of pain, or if you see it happening and it just makes you sick, he says in verse 2, complete my joy. He's just talked about joy in that first chapter. By being, here's how, okay, he's described the problem. Now he's going to describe how. By being of the same mind, having the same love, he says, being in full accord. That doesn't mean the whole church has to pile in a Honda, by the way. I just want to make that distinction. Okay, being in full accord and of one mind, um, he says to, in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. We're going to get to that in a moment. Look at what he focuses on in verse 2. Complete my joy. Number one, by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. Four things. Three of them have to do with how we think. 
One of them had to do with love. That's agape. He's talking about the God kind of love that we should have for each other. He's saying, if you are concerned about unity, then be committed to love. But most of all, be committed to being of the same mind. Being unified in your thoughts with other Christians is what he's saying. He is telling us as Christ followers to focus more on those things that unite us. He's going to get to what that is in a moment than what divides us. Because Christian, the world is watching us like a hawk. They're watching everything that we do. And they're waiting for you and I as, fel- as, as Christians to mess up. And they're, they're waiting for you and I to, to go after someone and attack someone or some group because they want to see us fail. Paul says, be of the same mind. It is important as Christ followers for us to be unified. The challenge is, is that when you have two people together, there's opportunity for discord, right? Even if there's two people, and Paul is telling the whole church to be unified, he's going to explain what we need to be unified around. But verse 3, we'll get to that in a moment, but verse 3 is kind of the pivotal, this is kind of the hallmark verse for this whole chapter. Look at verse 3 and what it says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I've given you a few, like, what the root word means in in some of these instances. Um, The do-nothing part was a Greek word that was used. You know what it meant? Do nothing. It meant exactly what it means today in the English language. He says, don't do anything. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It is very difficult in our day and age to do this, isn't it? Because the world tells us that to find success, we'll talk about that next week, to find happiness, to find consolation, to find uh, you know, some kind of ease for our pain, that we have to win and that we have to be right about everything. Paul says, you can try that. You can try it. But ultimately, it won't lead to lasting joy might lead to temporary happiness. And he uses a couple words that I want to describe this morning. He uses these words, ambition and conceit. And I want to give you a definition for today. In today's, this is how we describe this today in our, in our day and age. Ambition is a strong desire for personal gain. Personal gain. I want you to capture that. Without moral inhibitions. Now, I, I'm a guy. I like success, despite all my sports teams. I love success. I love success. I like seeing people win. I love to see businesses grow. I love to see churches thrive. I love to see nonprofit organizations uh, be successful in their mission. I love to see people win in their lives and, and find their purpose and, man, just really, you know, journey with, with God. I love that. that. There's an ambition kind of behind some of that. But what Paul is saying here is don't seek the personal gain of ambition. Don't seek the personal gain. And then it goes on, the the definition says, a strong desire for personal gain without moral inhibitions. A strong desire for personal gain, excuse me, without moral inhibitions. You see, we ought to treat others with humility in contrast, in contrast to ambition. And he uses the word conceit. 
Conceit is that we are delusionable. Delusionable, that's a great word. Delusional about how much we get it. He says here, you think you know more than you know. Don't treat people with a thought in mind, I know more than you know. That's what he's saying. That's what that word means. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let's keep reading. He says this, verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's how hard this is for us. <laughs> this is really amazing. This is how hard this is for us. In the original language, that, little ver that verse right there, verse 4, was like three words. It was like three words. In our language, we had to have more words to describe it. The word interest isn't even in the original language. But for us to understand what Paul is trying to say here, we had to have some words added, like interest. Don't seek out your own interest. Seek out the interest of others. You know what Paul's saying? Here's what he's saying. Get your eyes off yourself. Be careful not to put your eyes on yourself so much that you forget about the needs of others. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 5, and here's what unites us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is actually the example. This isn't what unites us. This is the example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. By becoming obedient, verse 8 says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all other names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those last four or five verses was actually a hymn that was sung, and, and they, they sang it in that way, to give glory to God. Paul is saying here that Jesus gives us the great example of how to do this, of how to have humility. And essentially what he's saying, and this is your first point in your notes, we delight in selflessness. We delight when we have to humble ourselves. We delight when we have to pay something to be essentially made lower than someone else. We find delight in selflessness when we follow Jesus' example of choosing humility instead of ambition. It's the first point this morning. We follow Jesus' example of choosing humility instead of ambition. And I realize that is much easier said than done. It's much easier said than done. I know that we all fail at this. Some of us fail more often than others at this. This is a very easy concept to understand, but a very difficult concept to put into action. To put into action. Now, Paul moves from that. He moves from this whole idea of being humble rather than ambitious to the next part, which is the thing that unites us. Take a look at verses 12 through 18. Verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, not only when I'm there, but so much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is like the parent that tells the kid, listen, kids, um, behave yourself. Behave yourself, especially when I'm gone. Like, really, like, cooperate between the two of you. He says this, you know, work this out. 
He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there are several paths that we could take, but because we are talking about unity, and I believe because Paul's talking about unity, I believe the reason that he put this in here was for us to get our eyes off of ourselves and not just onto the other person, but on God and what he's done. For he says this, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word grumble in the original language meant complaining under your breath. (laughs) Don't you like that? Complaining under your breath. Like somebody does something to you, and you're like, oh, I can't believe that person just did that. I can't believe that person just did that. Right, you know, and then maybe a few other choice words, maybe things you can't say in public. I don't know what that is for you, but he says not to grumble or dispute. Some of your versions say complain. That word disputing means arguing just to be right or criticizing people. The process, in the process of doing good, you do harm. That's what he's saying. He is saying don't grumble or dispute. What he is saying here is don't have argument just for argument's sake. It causes division. It causes disunity in the body of Christ. That's how we can be humble. We can be humble by following the model of Jesus and holding our tongues when we want to grumble and dispute. He goes on. In verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as a light in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the days of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He's saying, I'm I'm going to all these places and preaching the gospel. And if you grumble and complain, the world's going to watch and and the whole cause of Christ is going to be damaged because of it. There is no room for grumbling or disputing within the body of Christ. Yes, there are issues to be solved. Yes, there are facts to be faced in the relationships you have. But there's no reason for idle arguing and complaining and grumbling and disputing. And then Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, that's a little bit of what Jesus said back there in verse 5 when he emptied himself out. Uh, It's a reference to a uh, passage in in the book of Numbers. Upon the sacrificial offering in your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And the second point this morning is this. We find delight in selflessness when we're faced with a situation where we have to be selfless. When we treat everyone with the highest level of respect. Even those people that we disagree with. Even those people that were like, I know I'm right about this. I know that person is wrong about what they're saying. Paul says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if you and I want joy in those situations, that that we should treat everyone, even those people, with the highest level of respect. And the problem in the church is, is that sometimes the church is known for absolutely taking people to task when we disagree with them. It's okay to disagree with other people. It's fine. But we don't have to grumble. We don't have to dispute. When we do, we highlight the division. We don't highlight the cause of Christ. Church, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine what it would be like if you and I, in every situation that we were faced with, whether we agree or disagree, whether we like or not like, whether we um, you know, are in favor of or, or not in favor of the person that we're dealing with or the people that we're dealing with, what would it look like if the church, if you and I actually chose to be humble rather than to be ambitious? What if we actually, every time, chose humility over ambition? What if every time there was a, a point of conflict, we dealt with it in a godly, loving way and amplified unity rather than division? I, I think if we committed to this, it, it's amazing what God would do. There's no place for disunity within the body of Christ, so much so that when we as a church uh, wrote our uh, uh, agreement, our membership agreement, that many of you have signed, and, and we're going to be talking about membership heavily in January, by the way. Um, when, we, when you sign that agreement, you sign a statement that says you won't cause division within the body of Christ. Paul says there's no place for it. And that when it happens, it is absolutely a threat to joy. It's a threat to joy. And so we find delight in our selflessness, and we follow Jesus' example of choosing humility instead of ambition. And secondly, we find delight in selflessness when we treat everyone with the highest level of respect. The world is watching. And then lastly, and I'm going to make this real short, in the last few verses of this chapter, Paul kind of goes a different route. He basically says to this church in Philippi, there are two men that display this and that model this very well. And he's already talked about Jesus. He talked a little bit about himself. So he's already given two examples. But he says, my, my protege, Timothy, and Epaphroditus have modeled this so well. Timothy was a protege that joined Paul on the second missionary journey. And that Paul grew up. He wrote a couple letters to him. We might look at that at some point in time. The letters he wrote to his protege, a very young guy who was in Christ. He said he's a servant. He's there to serve. He's there to do God's work. And he does an amazing job. And essentially, he says to the church in Philippi, look at him as an example. And then Epaphroditus, who was the messenger that left the church in Philippi with money to give to Paul to help him out. He was in prison in Rome at the end of his life, and the church in Philippi raised money, and Epaphroditus delivered it, got sick in Rome, and Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with this letter that we're looking at today, which is a thank you letter to the church at Philippi. <laughs> and in it, he encourages them for four chapters. It's a long thank you letter, isn't it? And he says, look to them as an example. And the thing that we can learn from this, and the third point, is we find delight in selflessness when we choose a good example to follow and ensure that we are a good example to follow. Listen, I know that you know in your life someone who lived this incredibly well. The person in my life who lived it well was my grandma Kay. My grandmother, my mom's mom, lived this to its fullest. She was a wonderful woman, passed away in 2007, right after we moved here to Hilton Head. A wonderful woman that I hope to be like as I get older, but I fail every day at it. Church, if you want to be a Christ follower who chooses joy, be committed to finding your delight in these areas. And there are going to be times when joy is going to be difficult to find. There are going to be people who threaten joy. You know, they're the kind of people that read a self-help book, and as they're reading, they're thinking about all the people who need to read it. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like, man, this is a great book on how to manage your finances. I know I have no money in the bank and I'm in debt up to my ears. But, boy, John needs this, man. Hey, read this. This is a great book for you, you know, anger management, you know. That guy I just yelled at the other day, he needs this book, you know, and they pass it on. They're going to threaten the joy that you find in Christ. Three things to do when you find joy difficult to find. Number one, ask Jesus, how can I be like you in my response to this person? How can I be like you in my response to this person? Allow him and allow his Holy Spirit to speak in your life to know what to do. Secondly, choose to be humble regardless of the cost to me. I'm not going to be phony or, or lie to you. When you do this, the joy is not probably going to come from the direct result. Because when you're humble, the way the world is, and because of sin in the world, when you're humble, people will probably take advantage of you. You may lose. You probably will lose. But Paul calls us to something greater. God calls us to something greater, and we ought to choose to be humble regardless of the cost. Listen, that's what Jesus did for you and for me when he died on the cross. We're going to choose to be humble regardless of the cost. And then lastly, resist the temptation to complain about other people. Yeah, I, I know. That's, that's a tough one. But that's what Paul says. No grumbling. No complaining. You know, there's going to be times when we're put in a position where we choose to be selfless. And there's going to be times when selflessness is forced upon us. Our ability to find joy in those circumstances just like we talked about our ability last week to find joy in the situations that we face that aren't so good for us is to find who we are in Christ. Our ability to find joy in these situations where people put us in that cause joy to be threatened in our lives is to, to absolutely trust in God the Father that he will see you through this. Paul had all the reason in the world to whine and complain. But he didn't. And look what God did with him in Acts chapter 16. He can turn your despair about people and situations that take your joy. He can cause that to be turned around if you follow him in obedience in these areas. And for those of you who are in here today, and maybe you've been the one that's caused people to lose their joy. Maybe you start today by asking for forgiveness from that person. Maybe you begin reconciliation by being humble enough to admit where you were wrong. And maybe you can be an agent of change in that person for the better, even though maybe in the past you've been an agent of change for the worse. Father God, thank you so much for your word. It pierces like a double-edged sword sometimes, God, and sometimes it brings tremendous comfort. Sometimes it brings tremendous challenge. God, I thank you for these words in Philippians that are written to, to really do both. God, I pray that we as, as people, I pray that we would be people who, who choose unity, that we, that we focus on, on what we believe in about you and about salvation. God, and yes, we have to stand sometimes. We can't cave in to every whim that comes along. But God, we can show the world that we're united behind what you did on the cross. And so help us for our part in that here at Hilton Head Island Community Church. Help us to be people who seek unity and peace rather than division. God, 
I pray for those who are in here who may have caused some division or may have caused some harm. God, I pray that you, you would just lead those people in the way that your Holy Spirit would to a point of reconciling that. And God, I pray for those who have been harmed by someone else. God, I pray that they today can find their joy in you and what you've done for them. And God, I pray that they can stand confidently knowing that if they follow some of these things in Philippians 2, that they may not be happy, but they can be joyful in who you are. Thank you, Father God, for saving us, and I pray that you would do a great work among us and through us. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said it.